Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's no secret that American beauty culture, driven by Hollywood and social media, preys on our insecurities and promotes unattainable standards around the world. But another country is giving the U.S. a run for its money. In her new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital, journalist Elise Hugh explores the global rise and influence of South Korean beauty culture, now a $10 billion industry. And she joins us next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. From the rise of K-pop megastars to the dominance of K-dramas on Netflix, South Korea has become a global cultural powerhouse. And beauty culture is no exception. In her new book, Flawless, Elise Hugh looks at the rise of South Koreans' $10 billion beauty industry and how it became the plastic surgery capital of the world. And she examines how other countries, including the U.S., are now embracing South Korean beauty products and practices, like double cleansing and snail mucus face masks. Elise Hugh joins us now to talk about how K-beauty standards both empower and constrain women. Elise is the former Seoul bureau chief for NPR and currently the host of TED Talks Daily. Welcome, Elise. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what exactly is K-beauty? I describe K-beauty, or I have it encompass not just skincare and cosmetics, but also procedures like injectables and K-surgery. South Korea, as you mentioned, is the plastic surgery capital of the world, which makes the market extremely sophisticated and mature. And they're coming up with all sorts of ways to consider our bodies malleable and upgrade our appearances that aren't even available in the West. I mean, it sounds like it's fair to say, or I think in your book in several places, you said, you know, not only is South Korea leading, but probably 10 years ahead of most countries. How long has that been the case? And and what exactly sparked that trend? It's been the case probably since at least the mid-aughts, but plastic surgery as a kind of district and a state um, bragging point or soft power flex probably turned around the turn of the century. So around 2000, there were more and more plastic surgeons flooding into um, into a district called Gangnam, which I call the Improvement Quarter. And this came about after 
1997's Asian financial crisis. There were lots of regulatory changes in South Korea, which then encouraged doctors to specialize and not just specialize in particular fields, but specialize in surgeries. And South Korea at that time was already really investing in Hallyu, which is the Korean wave of K-film, K-pop, K-drama. And all these things are tied together because with a more visual culture and more technology supporting that visual culture, there was more pressure to look good and not just better, but that HD TV ready look, which meant a lot of intervention to get you to look that way. Well, give us a sense of what it's like on the streets. I think back in 2015, you moved to Seoul to open NPR's Korea, South Korean Bureau. And you visited, I hope I don't butcher this, Myeongdong, which I think is the makeup district the night you arrived. What was it like landing there? Just kind of paint us a picture. Walk us through it. Yes. So the numbers on this are that an average South Korean would encounter about four times as many Sephora's or the equivalent of Sephora, which is a skincare and makeup store, then an American encounters a beauty store. So I get plopped down into Myeongdong, which is the makeup district, and I'm standing on a corner in front of a skincare shop called the Face Shop, and you can look across the street and see another Face Shop, and look across the street and see another Face Shop, and then three stores down, a Face Shop. And that's just one of the name brand stores. You can do this with any other name brand um, cosmetics uh, store. So it was Innisfree, it was Etude House, it was uh, Holika Holika. These are all names of Korean brands. And they would just line the streets up and down and their store clerks in front offering free samples. I called it capitalism trick-or-treat, where you could just walk up and down the street and people would be shoving masks in your face and trying to lure you to come in. Now, this is specifically a place where a lot of tourists went. And so they were also selling suitcases, assuming that you would buy so many <laughs> makeup and skincare wow. products that you needed a new suitcase to take them home. I mean, I land at the LA airport and start feeling self-conscious. Like I look around and all the toes are perfect and the hair is perfect and I feel <laughs> that kind of pressure. I mean, when you landed, did you immediately feel that that pressure? Or, or maybe you arrived and, and looked perfect. But I know I, if I landed in that environment, would, would feel immediately self-conscious. I absolutely did. And I'm not somebody who pays a whole lot of attention to my appearance as it is. And so when I got there and was flooded with these images, so another part of this is just the signage everywhere. South Korea is one of the world's first fully wired nations. And as a result, you're seeing screens wrap around buildings. You're seeing screens uh, on the tops of cabs, on the sides of cabs. You have cabbies driving with giant monitors while they're watching television. So they're watching baseball games while they're driving. You have um, the average Korean has more than one cell phone. And so you're constantly barraged with images. And so many of the images that I was confronted with when I landed in Seoul were floor to ceiling ads of the ideal Korean woman you know, with the long, luxurious hair and the perfect porcelain skin and the small nose and the delicate mouth and the big eyes. And so I immediately internalized what I was supposed to look like. And that creates some dissonance when I looked at myself in the mirror, right? I am an Asian woman, but I am an Asian American and somebody who didn't grow up under the same beauty culture and the beauty pressures. And so I didn't quite fit in and I could tell that I didn't fit and it made it the the visuals made it very obvious as soon as I arrived. 
Is it a lot worse than LA? I think you've lived in LA as well. I mean, yes. is it- <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming to you at from LA. And the difference is that LA being as you know, being a pluralistic multicultural place and one of the most multicultural places in America, you you are offered a buffet of different kinds of looks. People are allowed to appear in many different ways. So you do have that segment of LA that looks like selling sunset or real housewives. But that is really just a small percentage of the pie, right? In South Korea, there was a real standardized beauty that was coming at me. And that's largely a function of the population. 97% of Korea is Koreans. And so everybody does have dark hair and light skin, and it's approximately the same size. And so the beauty industry can kind of narrow the standards even further for a population that generally is Korean. This is how I ran into something called free size. When you go shopping in South Korean boutiques, the clothes don't change to fit you. You actually have to change to fit the clothes. They are offered in one size called free size, which is the equivalent of a U.S. size two. So this was the first time that I, as a size eight, went into stores and just got these giant X's. People would make X's with their forearms (laughs) to signify that I wouldn't fit. You know, and it was the first time that I really faced marginalization and fat phobia as a result of my size. And it was very eye-opening to me because it happens for all of us, or, you know, all people who don't fit into certain um, standards all across the world. And it was just glaring for me at that particular moment, but also instructive. Are there just a rampant number of eating disorders? I mean, is anyone eating? How, how do you, be- I have no idea how I would become a size two. The rise in eating disorders or the rise in underweight women in South Korea since around the year 2000 has been rather alarming. I don't get me, don't catch me lying as we say in Texas, but the quote in the book or the number in the book is something like a 60% rise in underweight women between the ages of 18 and 35 since around 2000. And so, yes, there has been a lot of body restriction when it comes to one particular demographic and it's younger women, it's not necessarily true for the other segments of the population. There's a lot of off-label uses of diet pills. We are having this debate in the United States about Ozempic. South Korea uses a lot of um, the sort of appetite suppressants and diuretics that had been available all over the world for a while, but maybe just a bigger it's more normalized. And so, yes, there's, there is a lot of restriction and it can be very unhealthy, but it's not really talked about. And there's not a lot of treatment. And I think it's stigmatized to suffer from an eating disorder or even consider it disordered in the first place to severely restrict your calories. And where would you say then, or what does it feel like in terms of the confidence of women? Do, do, do women feel really self-confident or you know, where are they sort of deriving their self-worth? So much of self-worth in South Korea, which is a culture that's very based in looks and and beauty is seen as an ethical ideal. So to have a good life, you need to be good looking. And in that way, so many women are constantly having to work to be good because achieving at beauty means you're achieving at life. And this can be very empowering for those who can be at the upper echelon of this and spend the money and do the work and and all these interventions that are necessary to achieve or maintain that ideal. But I argue that it's anxiety 
um, driving for the entire system to have to maintain a youthful, smooth, thin, and firm look kind of forever, especially as you get older, it gets harder and harder to maintain those four global beauty pillars that I talk about, thinness, firmness, smoothness, and youth. But there is, it's almost accepted as natural or normal to have to achieve at beauty because so much of society is built around it. I learned about this concept of lookism, which add to racism and sexism, another <laughs> ism, and it's called lookism and it's discrimination on the grounds of appearance. And so that shows up in various ways in the professional sphere as well as the personal sphere. So professionally, headshots would be required on resumes, which has since been outlawed, but is still a practice that many hiring um, hiring and recruiter, hiring people and recruiters still uh, continue to enforce. And then, you and know, not parents, just headshots, right? I mean, weight and height, I think you, it was in your right. book as well. So, I mean, right. right. So, so your looks mattered, right? This all just reinforces this idea of a beauty culture. And when I say beauty culture, I mean a system that really emphasizes um, changing your appearance or a better appearance as a ticket to economic or professional or personal success. And so not only did you have the headshots, you also had parents gifting their high school graduates with cosmetic surgery so that it could help them in college. It could help them get a good job later. You had people, most passport Photoshop or photo agencies would Photoshop, you know, your images by default. I I want to do that to my passport photo. I hate my passport photo. We're talking about the $10 billion South Korean beauty industry and really what it means to be beautiful in the 21st century. And we're talking with Elise Hughes. She's the author of a new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also NPR host at large, the host of TED Talks Daily, and the former Seoul bureau chief for NPR. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We want to hear from you. We'll be right here in just a few. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. And we're talking about the beauty culture in South Korea and beyond with Elise Hughes. She's the author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also NPR host at large and the host of TED, TED Talks Daily and a former Seoul bureau chief for NPR. And we'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the growing influence of K-Beauty or South Korean beauty culture? And have you fallen prey to the pressure of beauty trends? How much would you estimate you spend on beauty products each year? We'd love to hear from you. Get your thoughts and questions potentially for Elise. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or send us your emails at forum at kqed.org or find us on social media, Facebook or Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Elise, before we went on a break, you were talking about sort of universally across the world, firmness, smoothness, thinness in youth are valued. I mean, I know I, as a mid woman in her mid-40s, I, I still strive for those. So do these procedures or these practices that South Korean women uh, do on a regular basis, do they work? Do they, do they help improve these four pillars? Yeah, absolutely. They work. That's what keeps people coming back, right? So when I talk about smoothness, it's not just hairlessness. It's that HDTV ready smoothness and it's creaseless skin. And so to get there, and that's true for firmness as well. And to get there, you have all kinds of uses of injectables. And lately it's salmon DNA that's getting injected into faces, which I did learn about when I was in Seoul a few years ago for the reporting of this story um, or for this book. And Usually salmon DNA. Yes, salmon DNA is is the hot new ingredient inside injectables that's supposed to really um, stimulate your cells to 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 look younger, your skin cells to look younger. And so is that safe? Well, so far so good. It's it's <laughs> the, the the thing about so many of these innovations is that we don't know the long tail effects. Botox has now been around for several decades and it is considered relatively safe. And mm -hmm. South Koreans do go back and get it um, every few months and at a much, much, much lower price point than it is in, uh, that it costs in the United States. And this is such a key part of the story, right? Because as changing our bodies is more accessible and more affordable, then it increases the pressure on communities and all of us to actually change our bodies. So previously, let's say Queen Elizabeth I might have not liked her neck. She could only really change her fashion to, to, to cover up her neck. Um, she couldn't actually inject her neck as people can do now with, with um, neurotoxins to change the surface of our bodies and change the skin and the tissue. So technology and technological innovation is so important to consider because the more interventions are invented, then the more we can consider our bodies changeable and malleable. And then that narrows beauty standards to become more and more like these sort of Instagram models that we see and Instagram influencers and what the algorithms show us. And so I write about this. I write about this notion of the technological gaze, which is, you know, we're all familiar with the male gaze, which is how women are supposed to perform for the eyes of men. Now we have a technological gaze, which is how we all are having to perform for algorithms and the machine because we are presented with 
endless scrolls of what is considered beautiful. And we are also presented with filters and zooms touch up my appearance that automatically smooth our skin or make our faces skinnier, especially at the jawline. And as a result, that then creates that same self-consciousness that I experienced when I first arrived in Seoul, which is, wow, I look very different than that, or my actual self looks different than my filtered self. And how could I change the canvas, the physical canvas of my body to better match these technologically driven ideals? And that is something where, and another area in which I think Seoul and South Korea was presenting a vision of the near future. Well, when you arrived in Seoul, you were pregnant with your second child, and I'm a mother. I mean, I don't feel like I have time to, you know, brush my hair, let alone get my nails done or get my, you know, get Botox, Botox done on a regular basis. So what, where do Korea, Korean women, you know, what do they sort of scrap or, or what do they, how do they dedicate so much time and energy to their looks? What has to go? It's another shift. It's essentially hustle culture, but on, on our bodies. And once I started realizing that aesthetic labor is another form of labor, and it's something that not only do we do this work, we're paying to do this work. So it's work that we're not just doing for free. It's work we're paying to do. And how are we paying for it, I think, is what you're asking, right? I think we pay for it with our time and our energy. And this is such an important lever to think about because time and energy are really a, a factor of our freedom, right? And women in South Korea are constantly having to hustle, not just to keep up in the uh, professional sphere, but also in terms of maintaining their bodies and their looks because it is the ticket, as I described, to a good life in a beauty culture. So what gets lost? I mean, South Korea, you, see, you have a society that's incre in, incredibly divided by gender. Um, it has the lowest, South Korea, despite being one of the top 10 economies in the world, has the largest gender pay gap and the lowest women's labor participation rate and the lowest percentage of women in leadership positions in the OECD. So in the developed world, it ranks last in those areas. And I think that that's really important to focus on and something that I didn't really read about before I went over and moved my entire family over to Seoul. Um, these women are asked to work a lot harder than they should have to in a more equi you know, equitable and um, inclusive society that I'd like to see. But I don't want to solely critique South Korea. South Korea presented so many examples for me and helped me better understand really the rest of the world and the rest of the, and the direction that the rest of the world is going. And it helped me better understand our own country, the U.S., it just presented these lessons in such a concentrated form that I had to write about it. Do you think that the U.S. is influencing South Korea? Or at this point, is South Korea really, is, is that sort of our future? Is, it, is, that, is, that, is that what's coming? Well, the U.S. is still one of the top two cosmetics and skincare exporters in the world, but South Korea is not far behind. It is the third uh, largest exporter of cosmetics and skincare behind the U.S. and France. It's now exporting a higher volume of cosmetics than smartphones, which wow. surprised me. And then, of course, has the most plastic surgeons per capita on the planet. U.S. surgeons do go over to South Korea to actually 
learn from and observe the skills of South Korean surgeons. So that is an area in which Asia is leading the rest of the world. But cosmetics innovation and big beauty is coming from all over. Hallie asks, are young men in their 20s also subject to the pressures of lookism beyond bleaching, s- their, which is yes. beyond bleaching their hair blonde, a la K-pop groups? Are they also indulging in cosmetic surgery and makeup? Absolutely. So I'm so glad that Hallie asks because there's actually a chapter in the book called Of Marketing and Men. And roughly 13% of all skincare products for men in the world are consumed by South Korean men, which is a small country that's small enough to fit in the space between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so, and wow. yet the men of South Korea are consuming more than 10% of all skincare products for men in the world. The rise in male eating disorders, the rise in male plastic surgery has all happened with the, within the last decade or two as society has become more virtual and more visual. So yes, the pressures are on men, but that is not the gender equality that we seek <laughs> because uh, I suppose it is more equitable if everybody feels the pressure of beauty. But my issue and my argument is really against the demands of this factory-driven beauty standard in the first place. And so just because it falls on men more doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to critique it. Well, let's bring callers into the conversation. Uh, Mark in Santa Rosa, you're on the air. Yeah. Hello. My name is Mark. Yeah. My wife loves the store Ulta and She's white, I'm white, not Mexican, and uh, it's like this universal thing. You know, um, my cousin has said the thing, all girls want to be pretty, but... Uh- Uh-oh. Did we, Did lose-, we lose Mark? I think we might have We might have lost Mark. Mark, come back with us in a, in a moment. I'd love to invite other, other callers into the conversation. We're talking about beauty culture in South Korea and beyond with Elise Hughes. She's the author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also NPR host at large and the host of TED Talks Daily, and she's a former Seoul bureau chief uh, for NPR. I'm so curious, do beauty products make you feel good about yourself or does advertising, marketing and social media actually hurt your self-esteem? I'd love to hear from callers. Call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can send us an email at forumkqed.org or find us on social media. We're at KQED Forum. It looks like Mark, Mark is gone, but maybe he'll call back. Elise, you tried many of these procedures. Did you feel better at the end? This is exactly what's really fascinating and complicated and interesting about physical beauty. It's that it's full of paradoxes. Beauty can be diminishing and empowering. It can be connective and creative and disconnecting and feel like a real hamster wheel. It's both. It can often be both. And so what we ought to do is take a closer look at not only the topic, but how we think about beauty for ourselves. And I think The area where it is really disconnecting, disillusioning, and anxiety-producing is when we over-focus on physical beauty as a matter of worth. So I think about beauty as something that's really a, a human need, but I think about it in a more spiritual and artistic way, like we think of truth or we think of love. But over time and through the influence of visual culture, visual media, and then also the beauty industry, we have begun to conflate 
physical beauty and appearance with beauty. And I don't think they're they're this, exactly the same. And I don't think that physical beauty should have so much bearing on our sense of self-worth or worthiness. And that's where we really need to critique it and break the link. Um, for the most part, I have now arrived at a point where I can, can try out various foot peels or um, sheet masks and enjoy it. And sometimes I'll take my daughter to get mani-pedis with me, and it does feel really connective. But this is after I've been on an entire journey of finding, the, finding and landing at a place, kind of a sweet spot where I can choose some beauty rituals, but not be over-focused on results or looking over my shoulder to see how I compare with other people. Because I think that's where over-focusing on our appearances can get really toxic. Well, there's been some some pushback against all of this pressure in, in South Korea. Uh, talk about the Escape the Corset movement. Yeah, it's so inspiring. So Escape the Corset is a feminist movement in South Korea that really emerged in 2018, my last year in Seoul. And an estimated 300,000 young South Korean women took part in which they kind of had it with aesthetic labor hmm. and this hustle culture on their bodies. And so they went on social media and cut off all their hair or they shaved their heads. And then they made videos of them wiping off all their makeup and videos of crushing their compacts and, and hair dyes and hairbrushes and all sorts of things and just throwing them in the trash. And then they hashtagged it proof of discarded corset. <laughs> and it was really kind of like the bra burning of second wave feminism in the United States. And what I call it is a general strike against appearance labor. And it's really inspiring, especially in a culture where physical beauty gets framed as a matter of personal responsibility. And so if you don't take part, you are really risking your job, your prospects um, socially. You are sometimes getting uninvited to family gatherings. Some women who took part in Escape the Corset were even reportedly assaulted because they dared to go out on the streets appearing without makeup or adornment and with short hair and gender-neutral clothing. And so it's a really inspiring movement, though I talked to several of these women just a few weeks ago, and they're feeling pretty disenchanted because there has yet to be large cultural change when it comes to the very specific factory-driven beauty pressures of the day. Do you think there's any hope to turn around that kind of pressure? I mean, do you think it's sort of inevitable that consumerism and because there's so much money, I mean, $10 billion industry, it's just too strong of a, of a force? I think there is hope. And if I didn't feel hopeful about it, I don't think I would have been able to write this book. <laughs> I wrote it so that we would have discourse and discussion about these topics and the proper response to an increasingly virtual and visual society where appearance standards seem to be narrowing. I think the proper response is honoring the diversity that's inherent to humanity and the human experience. So I, when I walk by Victoria's Secret windows for instance, and I see normal-sized models, which is very, very different than growing up in the 90s and only seeing Heidi Klum or Elle McPherson and very, very skinny Amazonian white ladies in the <laughs> windows. It's very, like, it's, it's just sort of eye-opening. And I think, oh my gosh, I was really in the upside down growing up during Heroin Chic and Kate Moss. And so I do think that in media representation, we are starting to see some change, at least in the United States. We are starting to have a wider discussion about 
the, how damaging diet culture can be, how damaging fat phobia can be. And I think that's an important step in the right direction. Well, let's bring uh, Carla into the conversation. Carla in San Jose, you're on the air. Hi, everyone. Um, hi, everyone. My name uh, First and foremost, I'm so excited to be on this. But yeah, um, I definitely agree with what you're saying in the media. And like, there is more call for inclusion and diversity in what we think beauty standards is and are. Um, I was just saying that I'm, I'm a 20, 24-year-old, right? And ever since I got my first big girl job, I've had like this more um, economic freedom, financial freedom. And the first thing I knew I wanted to splurge on was the most expensive um, moisturizing cream that made my skin look plump and and clear and all of this. You know, I wanted the mascara that made my eyelashes longer. And when listening to the segment, I was like, wait, I didn't feel these pressures or like the need to splurge on such items when I was struggling, you know, like when I was struggling to find like $5 for gas. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting um, that I'm not as critical as, Uh, critical as to what I'm consuming on media like I find myself yes we are expanding um, beauty standards right or we are questioning what beauty standards are but even then like I've fallen uh, as a victim to like the doom scroll and like I just find myself comparing myself more and more to the 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 vast images I see online you know Quick question before we go into the the break, Carla. What do you think helps? So yeah, you can go down that sort of wormhole online. What helps you sort of stay out and feel good about yourself? Oof. I feel like something that helps me feel good about myself would be, um, I think it's hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's hard to answer that um, because I feel like I'm still finding out what that could be. But just today, this morning, I found myself doom scrolling for two hours. Mm. At six in the morning, I rolled over, grabbed my phone, and, like, just started scrolling. And I, like, realized, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I yeah. can't do this. And, like, I had to delete TikTok for that same reason. Like, I don't think... Um, I just think the way social media and our brains, you know, go hand in hand, like, it is very addictive. Mm. And it's so hard to get out of that. Oh, you are not alone, Carla, that is for sure. Thank you so much for calling in. We're talking about the $10 billion industry, a beauty industry in South Korea, and what it means to really be beautiful in the 21st century. And we're touching on some of those really challenging ways that social media is playing into all this. And we'll continue that conversation. Just after this break, we're talking with Elise Hugh. She's the author of Flawless, Lessons and Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also NPR host at large and the host of TED Talks Daily and a former Seoul bureau chief for NPR. We want to hear from you. What helps you resist societal pressures and find your own inner beauty? Do you feel like advertising, marketing, and social media is hurting your self-esteem? What works? Give us a call. 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. We'll be right back after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. And we're talking with Elise Hugh about her new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She, her book is all about the $10 billion beauty industry in South Korea and how it's not only really growing there, but influencing the rest of the world. Elise Hugh is an is a host, NPR host at large, the host of TED Talks Daily, and she's a former Seoul bureau chief for NPR. And we'd love to hear from you How has advertising, marketing, and social media influenced you and your own beauty? Uh, What helps you resist societal pressures and find your own inner beauty? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Holly writes, has anyone looked into all the human and environmental health impacts of all these beauty products, such as how the chemicals in these products affect hormones and cancer risks or all the plastic waste? These impacts are part of the mixed feelings I have when I think about, excuse, mixed feelings I think many of us feel about these beauty enhancement opportunities. While listening, I find myself wanting to both take advantage of ways to look smoother, firmer, etc., while simultaneously criticizing all the conformist, racist, ageist, and polluting aspects of them. Well said, Holly. I feel the same thing. I kind of want to run down the street and get Botox, and at the same time, I want to just put my hair back in a bun and and say, screw it. (laughs) So, uh, Elise, uh, what do you think of the, the impact? Influence. We were talking here about about social media. What is this, the role here of social media, and how Carla was talking about doom scrolling? There's a huge role, and it perpetuates this notion of the technological gaze that I was talking about. Not only does social media force us into these echo chambers and silos where we're seeing that which we engage with, and that's that which we like the most, and that that which everybody likes the most, right? Like TikTok doesn't work in the same way as Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, in that you're seeing a lot more strangers. And when you're seeing strangers, these strangers often are perpetuating certain beauty standards. And it's almost implicit, right? You're not necessarily just watch. You're not necessarily watching videos for makeup. You might be watching um, some commentary, or you might be watching a cooking video. But you do see what creators look like, and it's inherent in their presentation what we are supposed to look like, and that's how we are learning what we're supposed to look like. And then the filters, which come with all of these social media platforms, are further amplifying what we're supposed to look like. And it's often smoothness and youth. And when I say youth, it's not like we're all supposed to look like teenagers, but it's that age somewhere between 18 and 35, which gets harder and harder to try and maintain as you get older. So that is such a problem. And it's something that I absolutely think is worth critiquing and thinking about, which is another reason why I'm so happy that the book is out there and that we have this pretext to talk about it. But also, it's also an opportunity to think about how we can honor our bodies and care for our bodies in a more empowering or affirmative way. And by the time we get to the end of Flawless, I write about ajumas, which is a term, a colloquial term for older Korean women. And they really taught me how to appreciate our bodies from the inside out because they are older and outside of the 
sort of target of traditional beauty marketing. And yet they still care for their physical selves. And so I did delve into how they are living a meaningful life and caring for their bodies and not completely letting go, but also not caught up in the same hamster wheel and doom scrolling that so many of us in our 30s and 40s and younger are are stuck in. And I didn't mean to, to skip over Holly's question there. What about the sort of human and environmental impacts of these products? So like the chemicals, you know, on our, our in our yes. skin, et cetera, and then all the plastic and the, you know, food coloring, et cetera, that probably gets into the environment. Absolutely. This is a tremendous amount of consumption. And the more we are framing um, beauty products, it's things that we need to just buy more of in order to try or then or buying certain buying 10 steps or adding more steps to our skincare routine, the more environmental waste <laughs> exists. And I didn't get specifically into the research on how it affects our skin and our bodies for this for this particular expl- exploration. But a lot of my sources did talk about it because it's something we need to um, bear in mind, we don't know long tail impacts of some of the things that we are and, and ingredients and formulations that we're shooting into our skin. But in the big picture, it's just a lot of consumption. You know, whether it's a disposable sheet mask, a disposable foot peel, it's 10 steps, it's little ampules, you know, that we're, we're opening up and it's a lot of packaging and environmentally a huge concern. So absolutely that, that, that's an important point to remember, not explicitly the focus of my reporting for this book, but I hope that there's plenty of reporting going on out there about it. And attention going forward. Well, let's hear from Ryan in San Francisco. Ryan, you're on the air. Hey, I, I just found this topic very interesting, um, especially from a male perspective. You know, in my late 30s, uh, a best friend of mine had introduced me to K-Beauty lines. And based off of what I was using then, I found that uh, what appealed to me and the benefits of the K-Beauty line uh, products that I used, that they were not only more cost effective, but they actually provided better results. Uh, you know, the ingredients like hyaluronic acids and things like that that are really beneficial to the skin, I found that they were actually... Um, putting enough of the ingredient in there and not capitalizing. So I'm making you buy more to get that Mm -hmm. same result. So I found that very beneficial. And in terms of cosmetic surgeries, um, you know, when I never really felt the pressure from KBD, just the whole culture to really augment my face in order to achieve that same result, just because the effectiveness of the products. Um, I found, you know, I I suffer with rosacea, a little bit of hyperpigmentation, but now I'm in my early 40s now. And my skin is just so smooth, so firm, like, you know, the three uh, achievements that we're hoping to achieve with products without having to do augmentation. Mm-hmm. I actually got that from the products just by themselves. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really great, too. Um, so, yeah, I just thought I'd share that. And I, I love the products that I use. Ryan, where do you shop? We won't we won't do an advertisement for the for the line that you're talking about, even though I'm really curious. <laughs> but, but where, where do you shop? Yeah, you know, so my friend, because her cousin actually uh, works for one of the largest K-beauty lines in Korea. And so I actually, she introduced me to Laneige. 
and Laneige, so, yeah. You know, and so, yeah, Laneige. And I, I thought that it was so clean. It smells clean. It's very light. It's not heavy. When I put, I do a three-step process. And, you know, in the K of beauty culture, like you see people doing up to 10 to 12 stages mm-hmm. of their, you know, their daily routine. I only do three and I get these amazing results. You know, I just put it this, um, this toner with a, a little bit of moisturizer in it. So that sets my face and just re- removes the residual, you know, dirt uh, and stuff from the, the wash. Uh, then I put on the moisturizer and then I just top it off with an SPF and I'm good to go. And then at night I do the same thing, but instead of the SPF, I put on a night mask and that's it. It's a, it's a moisturizer, but my face feels so amazing. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing, Ryan. I really appreciate yeah. the, the tips. No problem. Sergio and, writes, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, Elise. And Ryan brings up Laneige, which is under the Amore Pacific conglomerate. Amore Pacific is the, one of the largest uh beauty companies in the world and probably the largest in South Korea specifically. So if you want to get into the history, it has a really fascinating history that actually starts in North Korea. And if you want to get into the history of it, I think it's in chapter two of Flawless. And how do you spell that, Laneige? L-A-N, I think it's I-E-G-E. Okay. Just in case folks want to look it up. Uh, Well, let's bring Gretchen into the conversation. Gretchen and Santa Rosa, you're on the air. Gretchen, maybe we'll go to, oh, and Kamala's gone. So we're having a little trouble with our phone lines today. Yeah, let's go to Sergio. He writes, I hear us talking about people wanting to be skinny, but what about the opposite? I see a trend on Instagram of Korean girls having this kind of Coke bottle figure. Where does this come from and does it stem from American culture? Elise? It does. More and more we are finding they're a global mean. So we are kind of mixing and matching body parts because it's possible on Instagram and possible through surgeries and injections to achieve bodies that wouldn't be achievable without all this intervention. And so you're borrowing some parts, you're borrowing that really smooth, um, dewy, glowy skin that is an Asian beauty standard. And then the higher bridge nose that is from Western Europeans or Northern Europeans, you're borrowing kind of um, a curvier body from maybe the global South and putting together the ideal woman. And this is something that is a phenomenon that happens with faces. Um, The Kardashians, for example, are emblematic of this Instagram face, as it's described, with the big lips and the high cheekbones and um, the arched brows. And that is so much a product of filters, but then also a lot of cosmetic intervention. And now that sort of notion of a global mean and a highly malleable body that changes with the trends and changes changes over time um, is something that's happening and moved, crept into the body and our body ideals with very, very snatched waists, but then of course a plump um, buttocks, for example, that can be achieved with the Brazilian butt lift, which is the most popular body surgery now globally. Oh my God, I can't let that go. What is a Brazilian butt lift? What do they do? It's, it, it adds fat to your butt, so you can take fat from other parts of your body to add it. <laughs> wow, this is so fascinating. Vicky tweets, one thing we saw during the pandemic when we couldn't go to the salon or get our hair cut, our lips plumped, etc., is that people still loved and accepted us as is. It should have mm-hmm. been a big aha moment, showing us how much time, energy, and money beauty requires of us. I know the pandemic, I feel like I still haven't like clicked out of it. You know, I just sweats and, and my hair in a bun every single day, and I'm still 
still I'm still there. I walked outside my house the other day and my neighbor went, oh, my God, you look so nice. I was wearing jeans and a T-shirt. That, that was a real like, oh, I, I really got to start taking a little better, better care of myself. Uh, Sue writes, this is just a way for companies and people to make money. Most people in the U.S. can't afford to spend this money. I'm an older person who grew up in a hippie times when it was OK to be natural. How much are women, Elise, on average spending on their, their beauty regimes um, in, in South Korea? And do you know how that compares to, to American women? I don't know the latest number figure of how much they're spending per month exactly, but I do know that South Korean women spend twice as much as American women. And spending twice as much might mean buying four times as many products because the price point of South Korean beauty products are is lower than that of the United States. And so we know that sort of comparison point. But the beauty industry is growing and recession-proof, clearly, because after we came out of the pandemic, we saw this run on Botox. We saw so many people just rushing to go and get waxed and tweezed and plucked just as they did before, and their hair died, even though they had let their hair, their roots grow out and their hair maybe go gray. Um, I also echo what Vicky said and wrote write about it in the very conclusion of the book, that we did have this opportunity to remap our relationship to work when we all started working from home and we got to take a beat and be among nature and be with ourselves and question our interiorities during the pandemic and during lockdown because we were sort of forced to. But just as we had this opportunity to remap our relationships to work, we also had an opportunity to remap our relationships to the work that we do on our bodies. And I agree that it was as if, you know, we were locked down, especially in California, we were locked down for two years and then we just came out and, the wheels of capitalism began churning once again, and it was back to really full calendars and so the hard stops on our time and all of that. And in much the same way, we didn't reflect or have an opportunity to fully reflect the, the way we think about our bodies and all the work that we put into our bodies that maybe is unnecessary and doesn't celebrate them from inside out as could be more affirmative. I know. I so wish we could stay at that pace. I remember in the early months, it was so nice when everything got so quiet and so slow. And then now we're back on back on the treadmill. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. We're talking about the $10 billion South Korean beauty industry and how that's infiltrating the rest of the world. And really, what does it mean to be beautiful in the 21st century? We're talking with Elise Hugh. She's the author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also NPR host at large and the host of TED Talk. Daily and former Seoul bureau chief for NPR. And we'd love to hear from you. Have you fallen prey to the pressure of beauty trends? How much would you estimate you spend on beauty pro- products each year? And how do these products, do they help or hurt your self-esteem? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or send us an email at forum at kqed.org. Or find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, we're at KQED Forum. A listener tweets, I've grown up near the ocean and was raised by a mother who was beautiful and wore no makeup. I don't wear makeup and look foolish when I try. It is my opinion that beauty comes from within. A beautiful soul permeates through the skin and radiates confidence and loveliness. Beautiful comment there. Uh, let's go to Ozma in Los Gatos. Ozma, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I love this conversation. I'm looking forward to ordering the book. Um, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and I'm constantly worried because, about this topic because she does not fit any of the molds that you see out mm-hmm. there um, in media. We're, yeah. we're um, Indian, and I'm a Muslim woman, so I wear a scarf, so... You know, it's just um, 
sometimes it's a little bit worrying about what they're being exposed to and what, um, yeah. So one of the things my husband gifted both me and my daughter years ago, I think the book is called the Atlas of beauty, but this photographer went around the world and photographed women from all different ages and all different cultures. And it is one of my favorite books because it just shows such a diversity of what beauty is and can be. And One of my favorite things is I always catch my daughter every once in a while flipping through this book. So, Mm. um, you know, she doesn't have a phone or anything yet, but I really hope that that is something that she'll continue to appreciate and see. And and then this conversation is so relevant and important to me because it's something I worry about and think about. So thank you for creating this book and having this conversation. Thank you so much, Asma. I, I have a four-year-old and you have inspired me to, to buy something similar so that we have that around the house because it is terrifying. And I'm not going to give her a phone until at least after 12. If you can do it, that sounds like a great idea. I'm so nervous about that moment. Uh, final comments here, Elise, for you. What do you think the aesthetic industry would look like? What do women want if it wasn't driven by marketers and advertising? What, what do you think that women really call for and, and what would it look like? I think it would be far more like the book that Asma was just describing. I think that, you know, children as young as three years old override. We've seen that research shows that children as young as three years old override their own preferences in order to follow the preferences that they are taught or what other people teach us. So it's very easy to just fall for whatever the global standards are or whatever social media is showing us as appealing or, or attractive. But I think that if left to our own devices, humans would honor the diversity among us in, in a much richer way. And we wouldn't all be chasing the same narrow norms. And it's inherent to humanity because going in the other direction is erasure. It's erasure of so much of who we are and what we look like and how we exist. We've been talking about the beauty industry, specifically in South Korea, but also here in America with Elise Hugh. She's the author of a new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And I will put a plug in. It's really beautifully written with, in, with incredible stories. So I recommend picking up a copy because we've just barely touched on, on all the things that she brings up in the book. Thank you so much for joining us, Elise. Oh, it was a delight to be here. Thank you. This Hour of Forum is produced by Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, and Dan Zoll. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo and Amanda Stupai are our engagement producers. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer, and Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard. We could not do it without them. Our interns are Lulu Rada and Jericho Reininger. And thank you, Lulu, today for your extra help. We really appreciate it. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great Fourth of July weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.